This morning has us in the book of Leviticus as we consider the progress of redemption through the scriptures. We've looked at Genesis, we've looked at Exodus, and now we're looking at the book of Leviticus and the progress of redemption in the book of Leviticus. And I think it's certainly appropriate that we consider here chapter 19. There'll be a few other places that we'll look. This is, in a number of ways, a summary, uh, really, of the biblical theological thrust of the book of Leviticus, this really two ideas that we get out of Leviticus, um, two primary ideas. One of them is the holiness of God, the holiness of God. When you look at all of the codes, if you will, the regulations uh, of holiness, it has to do with uh, this idea that God has promised, he's made a covenant with man in the book of Exodus, that he would dwell with his people. And so in order for God to dwell with his people, there has to be holiness. And so, because God himself is holy. And secondly, we see here the needfulness of the holy of mankind. The needfulness of the holiness of mankind. I have referenced a number of theological writings for this particular sermon here. I'd like to draw your attention to two of them that I will refer to in particular. And one of those is... uh, I persuaded uh, probably the most accessible, best reference to the holiness of God, and that is simply R.C. Sproul's classic work, The Holiness of God. So I would encourage uh, that uh, as you consider this great theme in Leviticus, the holiness of God. And then secondly, regarding the holiness of man, uh, I recommend to you J.C. Ryle's book simply entitled Holiness. So J.C. Ryle addresses the holiness of man in his book, Holiness. And so I recommend both of those to you and those are perfectly in keeping with the theme, the message of the progress of redemption in the book of Leviticus. Now as we mentioned in our look at Exodus, it's very important that we continue to recognize that what we're discussing here is not a distinction primarily between law and gospel, but it's a distinction between the sacrifices of the animals in the Old Testament and the atonement, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New. And that will really come out, I think, as we consider more fully Leviticus chapter 19. That may have surprised you as we read through Leviticus chapter 19. And so let's consider this as we begin here. I reference Leviticus chapter 26 verse 12. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12. We'll move back to chapter 19. But we look here briefly at 26, 12. We could consider 11 as well. The Lord is saying, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And this is a standard that's frequently repeated. It's a standard, uh, really, that's a summary of the covenant. And we see here that the law functions to inform Israel how this new relationship to God should be expressed in their lives. So God has said, I am coming to dwell with you. I'm coming to dwell with you. Does that make you think of anything in the New Testament? Let's consider John chapter 1 and verse 14. 
John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Lord Jesus says, or rather the the writer uh, says this, the Apostle John, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Lord Jesus goes on, as recorded in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21, and I'll summarize them. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21, the Lord Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So we have here in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John, something that certainly is introduced here. Not necessarily even introduced, but something that really is focused on the book of Leviticus. And that, again, is the holiness of God and the needful holiness of man. The connection of the dwelling of God with gospel obedience and assurance. Now, I'm going to use the term gospel obedience a number of times uh, this morning. It's, it's a very important term. It's a very good term. And frankly, it is what was expected in Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 is nothing less than uh, the Sermon on the Mount by the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have here simply is a codification, if you will, a particularization of what it means to love neighbor. Uh, we've all talked about and commended this idea that we, that we, that we set aside something to give those in need. It's a very freeing idea if you set aside $50 a month to give to those in need. And so when those needs come about, you simply go to your account that's been collecting $50 a month and you give it to them. That's the exact same thing as not cutting the edges of your field so that those people that are in need can glean from it. It's simply a codification of what is expected of us in the New Testament. So the idea here is very, very important. Again, we're not, we're not comparing law and gospel. We're comparing the atonement of Christ and the atonement of the sacrificial system. The standard and the expectation of holiness, while it is thematically very much involved in the book of Leviticus, it frankly is no, there's no real difference between that and the expectation of the idea that Christ has come to dwell with us. And that the Holy Spirit ultimately has come to dwell with us. And, and what we see here, what, what do we see in John chapter 14? Again, we see the same connection. The Lord Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to dwell with you, to be with you forever. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. What's the next statement? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. As J.C. Rowell indicates, there's a persistent, persistent misunderstanding of justification and sanctification. There's a persistent looking after an antinomian way to live. There's a persistent idea that when we left the Old Testament, we left all of this burden 
of living a holy life. Well, if living a holy life is a burden, then the writer of the 119th Psalm, when he said, Oh, how I love your law, must have... What, I mean, was he a lunatic? Or, or was, he, was he somehow mentally deranged or something like that? Or did he understand what God was saying in the book of Leviticus and what God would continue to say in the book of John? So what we have set before us, again, is, is God's standard of holiness and this idea that we enjoy more deeply fellowship with the Father based on our level of holiness. Now again, this, we're not talking about justification here, right? We're not talking about justification, but we are talking about the progressive concept of sanctification. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So again, the connection of the dwelling of God with gospel obedience and assurance. And this is something, uh, it, it, is, it is interesting because, because if you think about it, uh, there, is, there is a Darwinian or an evolutionary application of thought here, even in the gospel, regarding our own fellowship with God. And that simply is this, that it is, that, that, that it is, it is chaos that just happens to come together. You, you talk with people who, who seem to know God who seem to enjoy a deeper relationship with God. And then you set them alongside someone who who just really struggles with and laments the fact that they seem so far away from God. And those people are set side by side. And often in our day, it's as if it's absolutely random. That there absolutely are no means by which one individual will know God and the other can't. But friends, we know from our own relationships, our own experience of reality doesn't doesn't indicate that it works like that. Your friend is your best friend because you spend time with him. Your friend is your best friend because you have a relationship that's progressing, that's developed. Your friend is your best friend because when you sin against him or her, you repent of that sin. You continue to blast away and sin against your best friend, and all of a sudden, what happens? Well, you don't seem to have the sweet fellowship that you had before. They don't come around as much as they used to. You, you feel a great loss and, and you wonder. And there's, there's no reason to wonder. It's, it's, as, it's as plain as day that there are means by which we enjoy fellowship with a loving, warm, heavenly Father. And that means is described right here in the book of Leviticus regarding the holiness of God and the holiness of that is so needful in mankind. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Friends, in our day, the gospel has been reduced to justification, to the monergistic single work of the Lord, to this work that God takes the initiative in, He gives to us life, and in that life we're justified in Christ. And it seems that even big evangelicalism has reduced the gospel only to this one thing, justification. 
And then people lament that they, they don't feel that they know the Lord. They have no assurance of their faith. They, they're not walking with Him. They don't feel His presence. Well, why is that? Well, it's because they've not considered the holiness of God and their own needfulness for holiness. The Bible says right here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, in other words, if we reject personal holiness, if we reject gospel obedience, how can we have fellowship with God? Now again, what is gospel obedience? Gospel obedience is simply an imperfect though sincere desire to obey God. An imperfect, though sincere desire to obey God. Was the expectation in Leviticus chapter 19 that there would be perfect obedience? Well, we did mention in in the book of Exodus, when we looked at the progress of redemption in Exodus, that there obviously are a number of people who would say, yes, the covenant... The Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of works. If you want to call the Mosaic Covenant a covenant of works, that's fine, but it isn't a covenant of works regarding salvation. It cannot be. It's a covenant that involved grace. It's a covenant that involved gospel obedience. You say, well, how do I know? Well, I'll tell you why. One reason. There's one way that you can check and see if it was yet another method by which mankind was to be righteous on his own. What did God do when they failed? He came back again and again and again. He came back to them again and again and again. And the people in the Old Testament who enjoyed the great fellowship with the holy and almighty God were those people that primarily focused on their own personal holiness and on the recognition that God himself is holy. So let's look here at Leviticus chapter 19. Beginning in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall be holy. Isn't it nice of the Lord to graciously ask them to be holy? Isn't that nice? Wait a minute. Actually, He didn't ask Israel. Did He? He said, You shall be holy. Now, children, how many of your parents have told you that you must do something even though you don't really want to do it? And when you did that thing, you found that it was so wonderful and you're so glad your parents told you to do that. Do you recall that? That's the case in Leviticus chapter 19. That's exactly what the children of Israel would then see and say and understand. I'm so glad that my Heavenly Father told me this is the way. Walk in it. Right? And they can say... At the end of their days, I'm so thankful that God told me and encouraged me to be holy such that I would enter into the means of knowing God, of truly knowing God and being known by Him. They're called to be holy. Why?
There could be two answers to this. One is their own sinfulness. And that is certainly an answer, but it isn't their priority answer. The priority answer is they're called to holiness because of something in God. God is holy. And because God is holy, right, we must be holy. Right? And this is the idea. Again, who gets the priority? Is this a God-centered gospel or a man-centered gospel? It's about God's holiness, and because of His holiness, He calls us to be holy. What fellowship has light with darkness, the Apostle says. We see that here in Leviticus, only echoed in John. Their holiness is significant because God has decided to dwell with them. The book of Leviticus reveals the holiness of God, again, and the needful holiness of man. Since God promised to dwell with them in Exodus 29, 45, and 46, Leviticus deals with how humans are to live in order to dwell near a holy God. Leviticus consists mostly of rules and directives in the following categories. Sacrifices and offerings. Cleanness and uncleanness. And holy living. The first act of the sacrificial ritual was when the offerer lays his hand on the animal, symbolizing that the animal is going to take his place. We can look at that in Leviticus chapter 1, in verse 4. Leviticus 1 verse 4 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Again, signifying a substitutionary atonement. This animal is going to die. This animal that is without blemish is going to die in my stead. Now, here's a question for you, and if you would read the context, you would see this and validate it for yourself. Who is laying the hand on the animal? If you say the priest, you'd be wrong. The animal is given to the priest, but the individual sinner is the one who's laying his hand on the animal. And again, this speaks to the atonement, the substitutionary atonement that is spoken of in this burnt offering. Again, if there is a comparison being made, not primarily between law and gospel, but between the atonement of the sacrificial animal and the perfect atonement that 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 atonement pointed to in the Lord Jesus Christ. These offerings, burnt offerings, symbolize the total dedication of the offerer. The grain offerings symbolize the renewal of one's dedication to the Lord. The sweet smell or aroma uh, is, again, symbolizing the renewal of one's dedication to the Lord. The peace communion offering emphasizes communion with the Lord after reconciliation. After reconciliation, after repentance, after the relationship with God has been restored. The guilt reparation offering brings the idea of compensation for damage done both to the neighbor and to God. Now, as you read Leviticus, you will certainly be caught perhaps off guard as you consider uh, the myriad ideas behind uncleanness and cleanness discussed in the book. It's important that we view that primarily in a ritualistic sense. The point is, it isn't primarily about hygiene. The book of Leviticus regarding cleanness and uncleanness isn't primarily about hygiene. It's about holiness. 
It's about their attachment to a holy God because the aspects of cleanness and uncleanness have mostly to do with the aspect of death. And the aspect of death to the Old Testament Jew was this idea, and it was designed to be a reminder of them of the fall, of the death of the fall, to recognize that they die because of the fall, right? And this makes them unclean. And it must be amended such that they can rightly worship God. Now let's consider more directly the holiness of God. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. God says, Be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19.2 God says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7 God says, Be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26 God says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. Leviticus chapter 21, verse 8 God says, I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. I think it's reasonable that we understand that God intends for us to grasp this idea that He is holy and that He calls us also to be holy. Not as a condition of our salvation, but as a condition of continued fellowship with God by way of sanctification. So as I mentioned, R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, he asks, he, he poses a question here. He says, ask a group of Christians what the priority of the church should be. He supposes that they might answer evangelism or social action or spiritual nurture. And then he asks, but what were Jesus' priorities? And when we consider the first petition to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the Bible says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Again, the first line is a form of personal address, not a petition. The prayer continues, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name, begins the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Sproul's emphasis is the idea that our Father in heaven is the address. But hallowed be your name begins the petition. This idea that we should work toward the hallowing or the regarding as holy the name of God. And he says that we'd be foolish to look for the kingdom anywhere where God's name is not revered. Now, a prime example of this is in Isaiah chapter 6. And I would ask you to turn to that. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's see what happens when someone gets a vision or an understanding of the holiness of God. I'd like to read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. The Bible says, In that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 
And the train of his robe filled the temple. Here's the prophet Isaiah. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah 6. There's something unique about this passage of Scripture in Isaiah 6. Among the the narrative here about the noble and amazing prophet Isaiah, we have the one time in Scripture where there's a phrase repeated three times. What is that phrase? Well, it's in the Old Testament. But it isn't wrath, wrath, wrath. It isn't mercy, mercy, mercy. It isn't love, love, love. It's holy, holy, holy. Children, you can read the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And you'll not find a place in Scripture like this that says, Holy, holy, holy. When Isaiah came face to face with the holiness of God in his vision, what else happened? Consider the narrative. He looks into heaven and he sees a picture of the holiness of God and what happens next. He comes face to face with his own guilt. Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah sees the holiness of God. Isaiah sees his own guilt, and what happens next? He recognizes that his sin is atoned for, that he's been forgiven. That his relationship is restored as they, again, understand the holiness of God and the needfulness of the holiness of man. The subject of the holiness of God is the subject, certainly, of this first part of Leviticus chapter 19. Now I'd like to change and draw your attention to the holiness of man the needfulness of the holiness of mankind. And I draw your attention there to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, in verse 14. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
Now I reference J.C. Rawls' book, Holiness. Rawls persuaded in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, that a question is suggested which demands the attention of all professing Christians. Are we holy? Shall we see the Lord? People may go to great lengths and never approach true holiness, but what is true practical holiness? Rawls answers the question in summary. He says, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find His mind described in Scripture, agreeing with God's judgment, hating what He hates, loving what He loves, measuring everything in this world by the standard of His Word. Now I draw your attention back to Leviticus chapter 19. One of my goals in this look through the Bible and the progress of redemption, again, is to see this continual connectivity between the Old Testament and the New. For us to see the sweep of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. For us to see the way that God is is helping us to understand the Scriptures and helping us to understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's doing in our lives. Now, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, the place that we just read, it's important that we understand this holiness that he's talking about. What is the holiness that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 12? It's the same holiness that's referred to in Leviticus chapter 19. It's not substitutionary justification. That's not what's being referred to in Hebrews, nor is it what's being referred to in Leviticus chapter 19. The point here isn't about them becoming redeemed because of what it is that they do. It's about them entering into a relationship with the holy God such that they can become more like their father. Look, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The writer of Hebrews is not saying, if you aren't justified, you won't see the Lord. He's not saying that. That is a true statement. If you're not justified in Christ, you will not see the Lord, at least not not as a shepherd or a friend. You will not see the Lord in that way. But that isn't what the writer of Hebrews is saying. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is the same thing that the writer of James is saying. If your faith isn't such that it produces a fruitful holiness, then that faith is validated as not being saving faith, and you will not see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Again, this holiness is sanctification. It isn't justification. If you are justified in Christ, if God has come to you and given to you saving faith, you are redeemed. You will see God in heaven. But there is a certainty about the faith that God saves you with, and that is that this faith accompanies, or has accompanied with it, the fruit of saving saving faith. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 9. And they reveal a good bit about the mind of God, as Raul directs us to understanding the mind of God and what God expects of those who dwell with Him. 
Well, he says again, as I mentioned, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, nor neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Do you feel bound up and burdened by expressing mercy and benevolence? Because that's all, that, that's all the Bible is talking about here in Leviticus chapter 19. We're talking about mercy and benevolence. We're talking about kindness to those who, who are poor. That's what's being codified in Leviticus chapter 19. Does that seem weighty to you that, that, that God expects for you to be benevolent and kindly? Because that's all that's being referred to here. And if you want to throw off the shackles of being kindly and benevolent, then... Friends, there's, there's going to be no hope for you in heaven because heaven's going to be miserable for you. Because heaven is a place filled with mercy and kindness. The Bible goes on to say in Leviticus chapter 11, You shall not steal, you shall deal, not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. Is it a burden to you that God doesn't free you in Christ to go steal whatever you want? Is that a burden to you that, that now you have to consider ownership, that people, other people own things that you don't and you can't just go take that? Is that a burden to you? Does it seem like that that is counter to justifying faith, to saving faith? Does it seem counter to you? Because again, there's some really nasty things said about the book of Leviticus, right? <laughs> but wow, I read Leviticus 19 and it's just as if the Lord Jesus is talking about the Sermon on the Mount here or something. He goes on to say uh, in verse 12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. What was the priority of saving religion that the Lord Jesus said in the the Lord's Prayer? The first petition, hallowed be your name. The first priority, again here, in our saving faith, our walk with God, is that His name be hallowed, be considered holy. Holy. There's no difference in that in Leviticus chapter 19 here, in verse 12. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Is it a horrible burden that when someone works for you that you pay what you've told them you would? Does that seem so oppressive now? Just because it's written in the book of Leviticus? Is that not an expression of biblical faithfulness? When a person works for you, and you've got his payment in your pocket, whose money is in your pocket? It's not yours. It's someone else's. Does that seem oppressive? Does that seem like not the New Testament gospel? It's right here in the book of Leviticus. Hallowing the name of God. Giving to people what is due. Intentional kindness to the physically challenged here. Does your redemption in Christ give you freedom to mock people who can't see? No. It does authorize you to be kind. And it expresses an expectation that you will be. 
Does your relationship to Christ give you the freedom to slander others? Does that seem oppressive to you that, that since you're in Christ now you can go about gossiping and slander? No. That's only repeated here in Leviticus chapter 19. We're lovingly to point out our neighbor's faults. You might be a little bit surprised when you read verse 18 here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You may have been told that was a New Testament tenement. But here it is in Leviticus of all places. That somehow this wrathful, angry God in the Old Testament has determined that an expression of redemption, of being elected and chosen of God, an expression of that redemption is to love neighbor. To love neighbor. That's what's being referred to here. We are to fear God. We are to fear God. That's again not a new injunction for us. Verse 18, the Bible says, I am the Lord. The implication here, when God says, I am the Lord, is this idea, again, that we are to fear God. Who is speaking? Who is telling us this? I am the Lord. Children, have you never, have you never heard your dad say something, and tell you to do something, and then say something like, I'm your father? Why does he say that? Well, well, he says that because he wants you to understand the weightiness with which what it is that he's saying. It's not just any random little guy that's telling you to do something. I'm your father, right? And that's the idea that's being carried here in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. I want to draw your attention to two of the catechism questions here. The first is, what is justification? What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I want to draw your attention to two words in these two catechism questions and answers and I'll read the next one so you can get the other word. Question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. What is sanctification? What is justification? Which comes first? Well, Sometimes we can complicate the answer, but nonetheless, the reality is is that God gives us life, we're justified in Him, and at that moment of justification, then our walk with Christ, or our sanctification, begins. The two words that I want to draw your attention to are very simple words. The first is act. An act. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Whereas sanctification is a work. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is this. An act, the intention here behind act is that it's an instantaneous thing. You're not almost justified in Christ. You're either justified or you're not. You're in or you're out. Right? It's an act. It's an instantaneous act. God gives you life. You are redeemed. But what follows? What follows is the work. Sanctification is a work. It's a work. That's a synergistic idea. It is God and man coming together such that this man will be holy. Sanctification is a work. A work of what? Of God's free grace. It's a work of God's free grace. But don't forget how Bunyan described it. 
It's the sweating work of believing. The Holy Spirit's at work. Does He sweat? No, He doesn't. But you do. You do. Right? In this work. Justifying faith, Raul says, worketh not, but trusts, rests, leans on Christ. Sanctifying faith is a grace of which the very life is action. <coughs> See, this is one of, the, one of the significant departures that we must make with much of big evangelicalism. And that is this, that sanctification is a rest word. Sanctification is not a rest word, it's an action word. I don't sit in my seat and become sanctified. Right? Sanctification is about acting. It's about action. Justification is a passive work that God alone does. Raul mentioned several reasons why practical holiness is so important. First, he draws our attention to Matthew 5.48 as God commands it. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Lord Jesus wasn't talking about primarily justification. He's talking about sanctification. Ralph says we should be holy because it's the purpose of Christ that He came into the world. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 say that He might sanctify and cleanse it. This is a reference to Christ as applied to marriage. He goes on to say we must be holy because it's the only real evidence that we have saving faith in Christ. He draws our attention to James chapter 2, verse 17, that a bare profession of faith with no accompanying fruit is dead and will not save. References 1 Peter 3, 1, and he says the most likely way to do good to others is by holiness, as many will be one without the word, by a holy life. Many will be one without the word, as First Peter says, by a holy life. We must be holy because our present comfort depends much on our holiness. God has made a close connection between sin and sorrow. He's also made a close connection between happiness and obedience. I often talk to people and they, they say they're unhappy. But they never connect that with an active disobedience to the Father. There's, it's as if that's auxiliary. It's as if that, that actually isn't what's happening. It must be something else. I, I just I want to be happy. Well, friends, the point isn't that you purchase happiness by obedience. The point is is that God has made it such that it's a means by which you will be happy. We'll never get God over a barrel. You'll never say, well, God, I did this and so you owe me happiness. That's not how it works. God owes you nothing. But He is connected. Our own obedience, our gospel obedience to a joyful life. It'll be that way in heaven. Luke twenty two sixty two. Peter wept bitterly. Why? Well, he sinned. He denied Christ. Acts five forty one says, "But they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for His name." 
We have sorrow connected with sin in the Bible, and we have rejoicing connected with faithfulness. You see that over and over again in the Bible. Psalm 119.11, Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Jeremiah 7, verses 1-24, through 24, God places Israel on notice that they can't dwell with Him in their persistent sin. Proverbs 15.29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. It's likely you've been told that it doesn't matter what you do, God will always love you the same. doesn't matter what you do. Does your experience of reality indicate that that's true? That it doesn't matter how you act? That your family will still love you the same? That they'll still express the same devotion to you? That you'll still enjoy the same relationships and conversations? That everything will be just like it was? Nothing will ever change? Even if you sin against them day after day after day, is that, is that, has that how your experience has been? The old Puritans broke up the love of God really into two things. One of those is the love of complacency, and the other is the love of benevolence. The love of benevolence, we could say, is justifying love. It doesn't change, right? It's quantitatively, obviously, that which is adequate to bring you into redemption. But the love, however, the love of complacency is different. Love of complacency is like in the process of sanctification. The reality is, is that there was an apostle whom Jesus loved, and there was only one that was referred to in that way. So obviously there was a different relationship even with Peter than there was with John. Why is that? Well, it might be because John wasn't always trying to correct the Lord Jesus. It might be because John enjoyed a deeper relationship with Christ because of a certain level of holiness. That doesn't mean he wasn't going to heaven. But he enjoyed, he had a capacity that was more full in enjoying the love of God. This is an important idea. You can't sin your way out of heaven if you're redeemed. But you can most certainly send your way out of a delightful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, such that you are having a sense of assurance day by day and enjoying a walk with Him. The Bible says in James 5.16, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. I mean, is that somehow prejudice against the prayer of a sinful person? I mean, it doesn't say in the Bible that a prayer of a sinful person will be having much power, right? The comparison isn't between the redeemed and unredeemed. The comparison is between those who are focusing on the holiness of God and their own holiness as to those who aren't. The one who cares nothing for continuing in the path of God, who has little fruit to show, will also have prayers that are less effective The Bible says in 1 Peter 3, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
The point of these passages is that God dwells in the midst of gospel righteousness, the same as He dwelled with it in the book of Leviticus. Wrong views of substitutionary atonement hold that personal righteousness, this process of sanctification that we enter into after we're given new life in Christ, are merely optional aspects of the redeemed. For those that have nothing better to do, But Christ's blood didn't buy my way out of the requirement of gospel obedience in order for God to dwell with me. That is, in order for me to enjoy His spiritual presence, enjoy fellowship with God and His people, God has attached this to personal holiness. There's an incredible persistence in the false doctrine of let go and let God. This erroneous idea which gives men comfort in their carnality, such as unscriptural interpretations of Galatians 2.20, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. How many people have you talked to that apply this idea that Christ lives in me to sanctification? This idea that there's nothing for me to do, that God has no expectation for those whom He's redeemed. That's a heretical understanding of Galatians. All of us, all of us, have enjoyed a relationship with an individual that grows because of our mutual affection, because of our unity and our like-mindedness. All of us have had that experience. That experience is valid for your experience with the being of God, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We say that He's personal. Why? We say that God is personal because He is personal, but also so that we can certainly and rightly understand that the relationship with God is like a relationship with a person. In that there's development, there's growth, and all of this growth and development is in the area in which we live after we're redeemed, and that's the area of sanctification, of personal holiness. The world continues to fall away while rightly rejecting the false gospel which changes nothing in a person and in a God without holiness who winks at sin in a divine relationship which is not impacted when the creature sins against the Creator. You want to know why people reject the gospel? Well, there's a million different ways. But one of the reasons is this. is because many people claim to know Christ and be born again and yet their lives are no different. It's a powerless God. It's a meaningless relationship, and it's rightly rejected. But there's beauty, true beauty, when God redeems us, and we come to Him, we walk with Him. People say, what is it? I I must have that. I must have this living relationship with God. And this is what we find in the book of Leviticus. Let's pray.